The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are assembled here in your presence to hear from you. We pray that our hearing would be honoring to you. We want you to be lifted up and exalted with all of our lives, with what we do and say and with what we listen to and how we listen and how we think about it and how we take things and apply them. Our hope is that you would be honored here, but we also ask that you would feed us and that you would change us and grow us. We want you to be worshipped and we want ourselves to be changed and We pray that you would use this morning this word, this passage, and what it tells us about Jesus, and also what it makes us think about about Jesus, because it doesn't tell us everything. There's there's more that we know than is here. But we ask you, Lord, to draw our attention to him and to cause our minds to run along tracks to to further places to understand more about him and to think more about him and to be changed by him. Would you do that and would you honor yourself in it? You've done a marvelous thing in sending your son. Would you now, Lord, introduce him to some here who don't know him? And for most of us here, the great majority of us here who do, would you refresh us? Would you cause us to commune with him again? Again today, in perhaps new ways or in the same ways that we did yesterday, but just refresh us again. We have to drink water every day. It's the same water, and it's refreshing anew every morning. Quench our thirst with Jesus today. Cause us to see him and to worship him and be changed by him, grown up and delighted in him, and and that to your honor. You've done marvelous things for us. You are a kind and good father. So I ask you, Lord, do more again right now. Take your word and open it to us. Make it clear. Would you send your spirit to to give order and, and to hold our time together here and to clear out distractions from it and to open our eyes to what's in your word? Cause him to run through the room in power now, Father, please. Give to us, give to me things that I have not thought of yet. Give to us thoughts that we have not thought of yet. Do it all to lift up Christ and draw our attention to him and to grow as worshipers of him and of you. We look to you for this, Lord. We need you. We are thankful that you are available and that you are eager to intervene and build your church and bless your people. So we ask you in confidence and in thanksgiving, build your church and honor the name of Christ. For his glory and for our good, I pray it. Thank you, Lord. Amen.
turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 3, where we are transitioning away from John the Baptist and his preparatory work. The last several weeks, John's been kind of the main character, been kind of the focus of, of, this, of this chapter 3, and what he's been doing, we've seen that, what he's been saying, we've seen that, what he's been preaching and proclaiming as he prepared a people, as he worked and taught to prepare people for the coming of the Lord, the Messiah. And John's ministry, what he did and said and, and how God owned it, was so powerful that while he talked about the coming day of the Lord and the coming Messiah, some people began to wonder if, in fact, he himself might be that Messiah. We saw this last week. They're beginning to question that and think about it seriously. And John answered that by denying it and continuing to point people forward to the one who was yet to come, the mighty one of God who was coming and who would baptize not just with water, but by pouring out the Holy Spirit of God on all the world in a fiery baptism. By the authority of this coming mighty one, the Messiah, by his authority, the Spirit will be poured out in power on all the world to do two, essentially two things at once. To be a fire of purification, a fire of cleansing towards salvation, and a fire of exposing and of judgment towards condemnation. Spirit poured out has that effect, both. Jesus taught that, John 14, 15, 16. That's what came then in Pentecost. As Jesus the Messiah did finally baptize the world with the Spirit. That was all last week. And Luke concludes there by mentioning John's imprisonment so as to kind of tidy up the details and leave John and move on towards Jesus. John is alluded to in our passage as he mentions the baptisms, but John's not explicitly mentioned, and baptism is not really the focus. He mentions all these baptisms, including, of course, the baptism of Jesus, but the point, the point is to move us on to talk about who Jesus is and to mention this long genealogy kind of puts him in time and in place for us. So I'm going to read from verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, including all the genealogy which it's with its 70-plus names. I'm going to try to pronounce all of them. I'll miss half of them, I'm sure. But I'm going to read this whole thing because it is all the Word of God, and then I'll pass back through and make a couple of observations drawn mostly from verses 21 and 22. I'll be working towards this main point this morning. Here's, here's where we're going. My main point, God has given us clear evidence that Jesus is the one through whom he will work and in whom we can trust. God has given us clear evidence that Jesus is the one through whom he will work and in whom we can trust. So we're going to draw from the passage, particularly from 21 and 22. But let me read all of it. Luke chapter 3, beginning verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, 
the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maat, the son of Matthias, the son of Saman, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Menah, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, and the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Aphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <laughs> Seriously, if you're a native speaker, I just butchered that. <laughs> but it is the word of the Lord. When I come to talk about the genealogy, I'll point out why that's here. Let me make a couple of observations and kind of details from the passage before drawing out two, two main observations. Verse 21 sets the stage by saying, when all were baptized, certainly doesn't mean everybody without exception. Oftentimes the word all in the Bible does not mean all without exception. There were plenty of people in the world who had not been baptized by John. And there were plenty of people who even came and heard John and were not baptized by him. What it means, rather, is that when lots and lots of people all the people have been baptized. Jesus too. And while other gospel accounts make more of the baptism of Jesus, that's not Luke's focus. Now, so grammatically, he just kind of lumps him in there with, with the others, all the rest of them, and it's a done deal. Jesus also had been baptized by the point of what I want to talk about. He also had been baptized along with all the other people. Which is to say, in effect, Jesus is identified with the people. He was one of them. He had heard and responded to John's call to turn his life towards God. And while that may in some ways raise some questions for us, because John was talking about repentance for sin, forgiveness, I mean, what does Jesus do with sin and forgiveness? That's to think too much into it. Remember, standing before John, as John preaches, there are two groups of people. The proud, who think, I'm okay, brood of vipers. And the others, who say, yes, a life oriented in humility towards God is right, it's what I want. Which group is Jesus going to be in? Obviously the second group. So he cannot stand off and say, I'm not going to be baptized. I don't need to be baptized because he's going to look just like the brood of vipers. I do need to be baptized. 
I am of those who are humbly submitted before God. And so he's baptized, and that had already happened. Luke's concerned, it's done. And after he was baptized, while he was praying, the heavens were opened, which might but might not be a a physical manifestation because sometimes that language just means and God stepped in. But what happens in verse 22 is very clearly a physical manifestation. Two things happen. The Spirit came down visibly and God spoke audibly. The Spirit came in bodily form, that is, in a material observable, detectable way. The Spirit manifested himself. The Spirit, who is spirit, otherwise cannot be seen, in some way or another manifested himself in a form that could be seen. But what they saw was not a bird. They saw something that descended upon Jesus like a dove, as a dove, in the manner of doves. That is, in some fluttering, floating way. He didn't fall on Jesus like a ray of light. didn't fall on Jesus like a rock. didn't even fall on Jesus like other birds, like, say, a, a darting hawk or something like that. But as doves do, in the manner of doves, fluttering, alighting on Jesus, coming to rest on him, And somehow the crowd could see something that somehow the crowd knew that is the Holy Spirit. Doesn't tell us how they knew that, but just they saw something and knew. And a voice spoke from heaven. The voice of God, the people heard. Speaking a word about Jesus So they see something and they hear something. These are physical manifestations regarding Jesus, who at this point was about 30 years old, give or take. Probably, if you you track all the ages, he's probably about 33 or 34, actually, but 30, pretty close. Verse 23 then begins this long list of names, some of whom we don't know anything about at all, and some of whom are, of course, quite familiar to us. And given the fact that genealogies at this time very often skipped generations, even acknowledging that, we have a pretty thorough accounting of the lineage of Jesus. He goes back through David, back to Abraham, and importantly, back beyond Abraham. In other words, outside of Israel. He is the son of Jacob and the son of Isaac and the son of Abraham. Jewish and the son of Terah and Nahor and Noah and Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Which is the point being made here. Jesus is not just Jewish. He's not just of the Jewish race. He's of the human race. He is not only the son of David, king of Israel. He is that, but not only that, he is also the son of Adam, the son of God, king of the world. The lineage lineage is expressed in this way to make this point exactly. Compare it to Matthew's lineage. Matthew stops still in Judaism. 
And Luke, writing to the Gentile Theophilus, writing for a much larger audience, is trying to make a point to all of us. He is not just the Savior of those who are in this Jewish family. He is the Savior of the world. He's one of us. The lineage is structured, expressed in a way that ends with the same expression, the Son of God. The voice from heaven says, you are my beloved Son. The lineage ends with Son of Adam, Son of God. And as we'll see coming weeks, chapter 4, that's the issue in chapter 4 also. The temptation of Satan. So if you are the Son of God, that's what's on the table in chapter 4, which we'll come to later. But the passage for this morning... This statement, these physical manifestations about Jesus and then the lineage that shows that he is the Son of God, not just Jewish, but for all of us. That's the passage. And from that passage, I'm going to draw out two observations, as I said, mostly from verses 21 and 22. That's where the, the weight of the passage sits. So here's the first one. Hear the emphasis in this too. This one... Jesus is the Son of God. Emphasis is on those first words there. This one, Jesus, he is the Son. Now John's been preparing us all along here for the one who was coming, for the, the great one to come after him, the Messiah. And of course, if we've been reading from the beginning, we know who that is. It's Jesus. He's coming. But now, this event, that's all made public. And not by John's baptism, but by the intervention and action of the triune God. Personally. Before the Spirit descends on Jesus, he would have looked just like the other people in the crowd. He's included with all the other people who were baptized. He would have been wet just like all of them, standing there just like all of them, with no particular uniqueness to him. But then the triune God acts in unison to single him out and identify him. And as usual, whenever we encounter the Trinity in the Scriptures, we never get a systematic, thorough, book-like explanation. No definition, no theological analysis. We just get a picture. Here is the Trinity. Here is the triune God acting. Watch. So we see the sun dependent on earth. Here is the sun on earth and dependent. He is praying at this moment. He is talking to his Father in heaven from a position of dependence and need. The sun. And we see the Holy Spirit come and alight on him and single him out. And we had talked even last week about the Spirit and his association with power. The mighty one. The Spirit's powerful work in all the earth. The Spirit is certainly associated with power, but, but we, knowing, of course, that Jesus is also the second person of the Trinity, God himself, he has his own power. He doesn't just get derived power from the Holy Spirit. He himself is powerful, so we need to think about the Spirit in, in another way, particularly because power is not the thing mentioned here, but identification, the drawing of our attention to the Spirit's work here, the Son is on earth dependent, and the Spirit's work here is to act like a great big neon sign over Jesus and say, this one, look here, this one flashing, look here. 
He's drawing our attention to and highlighting in front of us Jesus. Common work of the Spirit. So as predicted, we talked about last week, Isaiah 11, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, upon the Messiah, that is. We'll see Isaiah 42 again this morning. God speaking, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit on him. It's an identifier. All saw it. And then the Father speaks from heaven. The Father in authority explaining and declaring, this is my son. Which is a loaded statement. The son of God. We've talked about this concept before as we've seen it in Luke, back in chapter 1 even. When the angel came and announced the birth of Jesus, he said to Mary, he, Jesus, will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and then a little further down, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. From the beginning, he's been set up to be the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, holy and unique, that is, directly created by God. Uniquely so. Other cultures commonly used the name, the, the language, Son of God, and called their kings sons of gods. It's not unique in that sense. Even Israel called all of its kings sons of God. Psalm 2 was an important, constantly sung psalm at every enthronement. Here is the one who today has become God's son because it's echoing the language of the Davidic covenant where God said to David way back, I will set your sons on the throne and I will be to him, whatever king that is, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. So every king that comes along is the son of God. This is very familiar language except that this son is unique. Uniquely conceived born of a virgin, uniquely anointed. The Spirit of the Lord comes and rests upon him here, uniquely beloved, uniquely well-pleasing. Everybody knew they were waiting for a unique Son of God because all the other sons of God have been failures. God says to David, I will raise up your sons and I will be a father to him and he will be a son and he is a failure. And I will raise up another son of yours, and I will be a father to him, and he will be a son, and he is a failure. And I will raise up another son, and he will be a failure. Everybody knew we need the son, but we need the son. Because all these sons have led us into misery. And then here comes the unique one. Physical manifestations. The Spirit alighting on him, pointing him out. The voice from heaven coming and saying, This one, Jesus, is my Son, my beloved. In him I am delighted. What you've been longing for and waiting for, right here, finally. 
Now, this moment, it cannot carry, it is impossible for it to carry the same emotional weight that it would have in that moment because we sit here and we say, yeah, I mean, I know. I'm, I'm well aware. We, we are not in the place of the crowd. Everybody would have been standing around and they wouldn't have thought anything of this guy that's standing right next to this one. He's just, what's your name again? Jesus. You're a carpenter. You're a good carpenter, I guess, I hear. All anybody would have thought about him. And we are never, we're never going to be in that same place. And so it's impossible for us to feel the weight of this moment like those folks there on the side of the river would have felt. As the, the heavens part and the spirit descends and the voice comes, it would have been stunning, and it can never be stunning like that for us again. That's, that's the point of the event when it happened. But why does Luke write this? Luke is writing this to a man like us who already knows. Theophilus well aware of this event, well aware that Jesus is the Son of God. He's heard it before and, in fact, has already believed it. But Luke, as we think about why Luke writes to Theophilus, that's why he's writing to us. He writes, I write this to you, Theophilus. I gather together, this is chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I gather together these eyewitnesses to confirm in your mind to support, to build up, to, to ratify this, the verdict on this question that sometimes runs through you, to make it sure. Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I know you know this. I want you to have certainty. Theophilus evidently, maybe us, Theophilus evidently at some point in some times sits there in his world and looks around at all the opposition to Jesus, is well aware that Jesus comes to the Jews and the Jews reject him. What's the deal with that? He was well aware that there's a world out there that does not receive him and also perhaps sits and looks at his own problems and his own issues and his own inadequacies and wonders perhaps in the night all by himself, have I really done the right thing? Have I hitched my wagon to the right horse? Is this Jesus really the one? Because if, if he was, why wouldn't things be different here? Why wouldn't there be greater acceptance? Or why wouldn't the gospel run more smoother? Why wouldn't our church grow? Or why wouldn't my health change? Or why wouldn't my job go easier? Why wouldn't my relationships be better? Really? Maybe I'm wrong about something here. That is not unique to Theophilus. We, we live there. And Luke tells him, Theophilus, people saw with their physical eyes a physical manifestation. They heard with their physical ears an audible voice. Eyewitnesses. 
This is for all of us who wonder and doubt and need to have settled in our minds. People who had no reason to believe that this one was the Messiah saw God speak, alight on him, talk about him. Eyewitnesses. Why doesn't he do that for me? I mean, all, yeah, sure, but I, what I'm praying for, what I keep asking for is God to show me. Well, come on. Is an audible voice supposed to speak from heaven for every single person, every single place, for all of time? Do you demand that? Is a physical manifestation supposed to happen for every single person on every continent all across time? Do you, do you demand that? He has done something far different than given us teaching. He has given us physical manifestations reported to us by people in history. I saw this. I heard that. Indeed, we have a faith decision to make. But it is not a blind faith. It is a faith in facts. Testified to by many people. This is written to us. Obviously, if you're not a Christian, this is written to you to, to invite you and to draw you in. But this is written to Christians, and it's meant to be to us an encouragement. You are not in the same place as every other religion in the world. Do you realize every other religion in the world, every other religion in the world, every other religion in the world is believing people's opinions about things. We are believing facts. And then granted, 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 interpretations of those facts. Certainly. I, I'm, I'm certainly willing to grant that you might have an alternative interpretation to why the tomb was empty. But the tomb was empty. I will, I will grant that there are alternative interpretations as to what the voice meant, but people heard a voice. People saw the Spirit. People saw him walk on water. People saw him raise the dead. People saw things happen. Not heard people claim things. They saw things happen. We are in a very different place than every other faith on the earth. That should be an encouragement to you. In the moments when you wonder, but why isn't it working out? Well, I, I can't say why it isn't working out right now. Why it isn't working out in this particular way. God has ways I do not understand. We do not understand. But Christian, along with Theophilus, see this and rest in the certainty of what you have been taught. This one is the Son. This one is the Anointed One the uniquely sent one. And it is just possible that 
still, some of us sit here now and say, well, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't really doubting that. I knew that already. And I've never really wondered if I was right or wrong. But I was kind of hoping that I would come to church today and the Bible would say something or the preacher would say something that would be helpful in life circumstance X, Y, Z. I, I deal with marriage that is very difficult. I'm struggling to raise kids. My parents are not Christians. I'm, I'm wondering about what I'm going to do about my future. And I wish the Bible would speak to that. And, and I suppose it is good to know that Jesus is the one that I already thought he was, but I'm not sure how that affects anything. It, it affects it like this. Alongside the riverbank, a bunch of people got out of the river wet and are standing there, and everybody begins to say, well, it's like six hours back to wherever, and that's a long walk, and we better get started, and where are we going to stop for lunch, and we've got to get gas at the whatever, and can we make it home in time for the, oh yeah, I forgot, I mean, this is a great little conference that we just came to here, but I get back to work tomorrow, and yeah, I forgot. Those two cows are dying. What am I going to do about them? And, 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 and. And then the heavens open, and the Spirit of God falls on this guy standing next to me. And a voice says, This one, this one is the one. And you forget about the cows. And lunch is no longer relevant. Because the Holy Spirit in that moment is carrying on his, his typical ministry. It is a unique thing. Certainly, Jesus is saying that. That is a unique thing. But, but it's his typical ministry. The Spirit's typical ministry is to run through the world and draw our distracted hearts and wandering minds to draw us to him. And to see him who is the thing, who is the one. Our hearts are prone to wander and prone to forget him and prone to overlook him and prone to assume him. Not intentionally and, and not with mean spirit and not certainly not in wanting to be sinful, we, but we are a people who wander and a people who forget and a people for whom it is extremely easy for lunch and where we're going to stop for gas and what are we going to do about the cows and what about what that becomes life and it isn't. He is. And in that moment, you would be crystal clear on that because you would stand, you'd hear, and you'd see you were the one? And, and he would say, I thought you were worried about cows. Uh, not anymore. You are, the, you are the one? Your attention is on him. Focused on him. Consumed by him. And certainly you have to walk home and have to head back into life, as all those folks did. They didn't hang out forever by the side of the Jordan River. Life moved on, clearly, 
And, and because this is a unique story, we, we don't get everything that happened, and we follow Jesus, not the guys who went home. But when we, when we wonder what, I was hoping for something that would be relevant for my life. I have to believe that those folks thought a voice from heaven said the Messiah is here. Some of those folks became the ones who followed him. They came back in John. We can read about this in other Gospels. John pointed them on, follow him, follow him. Some of those folks did leave their lives and follow him as he wandered around. But some of them followed him in their hearts at home because you have to go home. We're not to, we're not to leave the world, but we're to be with him in the world. What I'm trying to say is that it is incredibly relevant to the day-in, day-out life that you must live. It is incredibly relevant to know that Jesus, this one, is the Son, and God has sent him, and God is indeed at work. He has not forgotten. His promises are not falling. Well, what are his promises? And what is he doing in this one? If he is at work in him, to do what? That's what takes us on to the second point. So having identified Jesus as the Son of God, perhaps reconfirming our focus on him or our trust in him, we now have to ask, well, you know, what's, he, what's he doing? What's he about? Here's the second observation. This Jesus is the Son and the servant who will accomplish God's plans. This Jesus is the Son and the servant who will accomplish God's plans. There are two titles there, son and servant, obviously. We've talked about son a little bit already. Son should make us think of kingship in this passage. Certainly the term tells us more. It was also used, and even is today, when we, when we talk about somebody being a son of something, we're saying often something about what they're like. Something about their character, their behavior, things they're, they're similar to. So when the Bible calls two of the disciples sons of thunder, it's making a statement about their behavior, about their, their character, their attitude. Thunderous, if you will. When it says Jesus is the Son of God, it tells us something about his character, his behavior. He is God-like in who he is and in what he does. So there's certainly that there. And the term also tells us something about relationships within the Trinity. The God who is, and I say it like that, the God who is, because I don't want to just say the God of the Bible, as if there are other gods. The God who is, the only God who is, is one single God who exists in three persons. One single God. And when... That God describes himself to us as having three persons and one named Father and one who calls himself Son. It tells us something about how they relate to one another. We see it here, for instance, with Jesus praying, dependent. Or we hear it when Jesus says things on earth about, I do only what my Father says. I must be about my Father's work. So we learn something from the word Son about relationships within the Trinity. 
So there's more we can learn from son, but here the context in this, in this anointing, or maybe we might say this inaugurating passage, is on identifying him as the coming king. Psalm 2. You are now enthroned. You are my son, and like I promised David long ago, my love rests on you. Uniquely so. And so what's he going to do? Psalm 2 is awesome. And it is awesome in a hard way. There are certain passages in the Bible that are awesome in their beauty and awesome in their gentleness. And Psalm 2 is awesome in that in it God says, Let's play hardball. The kings and the nations plot against the one that I have set up as king. Ah! He mocks them from heaven. I have picked my son and enthroned him, and with a rod of iron he will crush the nations. Let's play hardball. That's Psalm 2. It is awesome in a fearful way. This is the king. This one, Jesus, is the son who will succeed in subduing every rebel on all of the earth. Every rebellious king and every rebellious nation and every rebellious person. It is awesome in an awful way. Which is why the psalm also contains a warning to all who hear this from a position of rebellion and says, Oh, in this moment right now, kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. There is a moment right now before the scepter falls and crushes, there is a moment now to submit and to humbly repent and to come kissing, to come bowed down. That moment lasts right now, but it will not last forever. It, it, this son will surely put down all of the rebellion on the earth. So be warned about that and be encouraged by it, believer, even when it doesn't look like it. And the mocking and the scorning and the plotting runs freely and is triumphant in the world and perhaps even against you interpersonally from people that you know and otherwise care for as they mock and look down upon you, realize there is a great reckoning and rather than being resistant or angry or bitter towards them, you should almost weep for them. I say almost because that is incredibly hard if the persecution coming against you is hard and has a fist or a gun in it, as happens in the church and the world. It is hard to weep for those who are killing you, as Christians in the world know. It's hard to weep for those in our country more who, who laugh at you and pss, snicker. But we should realize that that reckoning that is coming against the one who persecutes is devastating and is eternal. We should be sober-minded and careful with this, but we should be encouraged by it. It may seem that one side, the mighty have the upper hand, but the shoe will be put on the other foot. 
His kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is Jesus, the beloved Son, the King. It is an awesome, sobering psalm. He is the Son, and he is also the servant. Now, the word servant is not in the passage, but we get to it as we think through what it was the voice from heaven said and what it was that they saw happen. He has anointed him with the Spirit and spoken over him, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. A statement that picks up a couple of important ideas from Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, yes, Isaiah again. If you've been tracking this, you realize Luke spends a lot of time in Isaiah, connects a lot of things to Isaiah. Luke's got Isaiah 40 on his mind earlier in this, in this same chapter. We could look at some things in Isaiah 41. Here he has Isaiah 42. He's got a lot in Isaiah. But 42 verse 1 is a good place to camp. God says there, this is Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. A couple of echoes from our passage about the chosen one and the soul delighting and the spirit resting upon him. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The one in whom God delights, upon whom he puts his spirit. Here he doesn't call him son, but instead calls him servant. Which should make us think of purpose or task, where a servant does something. And while the son makes us think of king and Psalm 2 and rule and judgment and deliverance from the nations, this passage of servant is going to tell us a little more about what he's like about how he does that in a slightly different way. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 42 still. What will that be like? What will he be like? Verse 2. Isaiah 42, 2. And hear the contrast here. Psalm 2, you've got the sun enthroned with a, a rod of iron. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. It's a different image. He will be humble, gentle with the weak and faint-hearted. Continuing, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This servant, humbly, gently, faithfully, in persevering determination, tirelessly works, tirelessly works until he accomplishes his assigned task, which is to bring justice to all of the earth, to establish justice, not just to speak of it, not just to enforce it from on high, but to establish it so that it is how things are. 
everywhere, even in the distant coastlands. This is the servant's task in this passage, Isaiah 42, and surrounding passages in surrounding chapters in Isaiah 40, 50. All those tell us more about the mission, about what God's doing in his servant, about who the servant is, about what he's like. Essentially, the servant is to bring God's justice, his righteousness, God's character, God, to all of the nations and cause the glory of the Lord to cover all of the earth, to bear witness to God, to give word about God, and to draw the nations to the worship of this good, just God and to establish the ways of God in all of the earth. The servant humbly, faithfully, patiently, not giving up until it is done. How will he do that? Well, in a very different way than the original chosen servant of the Lord. Track two things here. Psalm 2 We've got this backstory about the Son of God, King in the line of David. Son who fails. Son who fails. Son who fails. We're looking for the Son. You track through these chapters in Isaiah and you realize the original servant of the Lord was Israel. Israel, the people, the offspring of Abraham. The servant of the Lord, God chosen. God's chosen one to carry word of God and witness of God to the nations and to draw them in. But Israel failed. Israel failed as that servant. Like David failed as that son. But the plans of God and the purposes of God are not failed and will never fall. God raised up another greater son and he chose another greater servant. Behold Jesus, my servant. The one on whom my favor rests, my beloved one, the one in whom I delight. With him I am well pleased and the spirit falls to rest on him. On him my spirit rests the voice speaks from heaven to affirm it and to prove it. And in humble, patient, persevering power, this servant, as 42 verse 3 says, faithfully brings forth justice. Doesn't fail. He succeeds in establishing it. One day as the son, he will enforce it with a rod of iron, but not now. Right now, he does not demand center stage, but as a humble and quiet, even humble, so humble as to become a man, even so humble as to become a servant, crucified, killed on a cross. Right now, he is gentle with the weak, not breaking a, a bruised weed that might almost fall over. He won't break it down, but he will uphold it. And a whip that is about to burn out, he won't, he won't snuff it out, but will fan it into flame. He is so gentle and gracious and kind, not demanding that he be center stage but persevering faithfully, not losing hope, as a suffering servant laboring on until he establishes justice on the earth. Humble, 
patient, gracious, even while despised and rejected and esteemed not, rejected by mankind and smitten by the Lord. We read about it in Luke later, of course, but Isaiah 52, 53 makes this crystal clear. Here is the servant, and we all set him aside and cast him down, and he is so patient and faithful and determined to establish justice that he will bear the wrath of God on himself and the scorn of mankind. He will take the blow for us, be struck down for our sin, pierced on the cross for our transgressions. Though he is the beloved one of the Father, the Father is pleased to crush him, pleased to crush this beloved one, that out of his anguish he might see his descendants This servant, this righteous one, will make many to be counted righteous by bearing our iniquities on the cross. This is a glorious work of God. The servant, humble beneath God's wrath, humble in the face of our rejection. That's how he establishes justice on the earth, by taking away God's wrath and making us new, making us Righteous in standing and committing himself by the wisdom of his own teaching and by the power of his own spirit that he pours out on us, moving us to further and further and increasingly and more deeply and more widely walk in righteousness and to love justice and to love mercy and to love truth, to be like him, in other words. And so he establishes justice on the earth patiently and faithfully and graciously and tenderly with all of us who are weak and weary. A marvelous servant is this one, Jesus, the Son. This is the work of the Lord. This calls all of our attention to him, and it calls for all of our devotion to him and our worship of him and our trust of him. He is indeed carrying out his work. It may not look like it. The nations may still gripe, moan, complain, and wickedly plot. But he wins. The might of God, the might of God sometimes looks like a fist with a rod of iron breaking. And sometimes the might of God looks like a gentle and quiet stream that undermines everything until it all falls. The gentle, the gracious, the humble will not bruise, will not break the bruised reed and will not snuff out the the ever so faintly smoldering wick. The gracious and humble Jesus He is the servant and he is the son. He is the one through whom God is working and he is the one that we can and must trust. All of your attention, Christian, should be drawn to him. Should. And all of your attention can be drawn to him. Can. What I mean to say in that is that a privilege has been given to you a focus for your heart and a focus for your mind 
that can cause you to walk day after day in assurance God's plans are being carried out. His justice is being established. I am secure. He wins. So trust Him and worship Him and rest in Him. This one, Jesus, who is God's Son, who is God's servant, who is the Savior of all of the world, not just of Jews, Gentiles too, us too, you too. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.